3: Slavery was not simply a new plantation labour system thousands of miles from England, but instead was an institution that was both real and present in London. It was not a colonial abstraction, but a local social reality. So argues today's guest, whose latest book explores the lives of those who were enslaved in London in the late 17th century and who sought to escape. Drawing on the earliest known advertisements for runaways, the book explores both enslavers' efforts to control and to objectify enslaved people as a commodity, and the way those who were enslaved sought to break free to determine the course of their own lives. Professor Simon Newman is Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Glasgow and Senior Research Fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This year, he is a visiting scholar at the Charles Warren Centre for Studies in American History at Harvard University. He's also founding editor of the Royal Historical Society book series, New Historical Perspectives. His new book is Freedom Seekers, Escaping from Slavery in Restoration London. It has just been published by the Institute of Historical Research and the University of London Press and is available to download for free from www.humanities dash digital dash library dot org Professor Newman thank you so much for joining me to talk about freedom seekers and the really fascinating research that you've done to explore the lives of these people who were looking for their freedom in Restoration London we could perhaps start by talking a little bit about language. I was very interested by the explanation you offer at the beginning of the book about some of the crucial decisions in the use of language. Maybe this doesn't matter quite so much to people who are hearing it, but I still think it's interesting that we now find the word slave problematic and you choose to capitalise black and white. And I wonder if you could talk me through the thinking behind both of those.
2: Yes, it's a really interesting subject, which is changing all of the time. The way the book is written now would have been different five years ago, and it will probably be different in five years. So it's a rapidly shifting scenario. But in using black and white, various publications have said that the use of black tends to be used to objectify people. And white is the default and white is lowercase because everyone, society is white and talking about the blacks was also such a racist and pejorative expression. So by capitalizing both black and white, it's acknowledging that each is a race and is treated as such by society and the history we're looking at it shapes all of that. So that was the logic for using black and white. Slave is about how do we acknowledge that these were people rather than used the language of the time, which did not really treat them as people, which treated them as property, as legally inferior, as almost less than human. And so on the manifest of a slave ship, the people on board weren't named. They were property. And it was how many slaves from this part of Africa? How many from this part? How much are they worth? How many men? How many women? How many children? And so slaves is like talking about animal livestock. Whereas if you use the word enslaved you are talking about this is what was done to them. This is what they were made by the people who were buying and selling and then using them. These are the kinds of ways in which language, I think, is so important. And especially for a book project like this, where I really want to try as best I can to recover something of these people's lives.
3: I think it's so interesting. And you know the sense that the word slave suggests it's something ontological, it's something in their being that they are destined to be a slave. Whereas the general use of the word enslaved indicates precisely, as you say, that this has been done to somebody, and that's so important.
2: Exactly. And then equally, the use of the word enslaver rather than, say, master. And I do use the word master just because in 17th century England, a lot of white servants would have talked about their master, the head of the household, usually male. That was a legally recognized term for that person. So I don't think it's as problematic as it would be if I was writing about the North American colonies or the Caribbean, whereas their master is about the power relationship, about the person who owns and enslaves. And so talking about enslaver again is to say, this is something this person is doing to people of color below them. This person is constantly using his usually power to keep them enslaved.
3: Yes, and we'll talk a bit about the slippage between servant and those who were enslaved when we get to London the 17th century in a bit. But you begin your book with an imaginative account of a 17-year-old called Ben, who did exist, who was in the service of a merchant called Theodore Johnson in London in 1686. And in doing so, you're drawing for inspiration on the work of people like Professor Sadia Hartman, Dr. Marissa Fuentes. And I've actually spent quite a lot of time with their work. But for those who aren't familiar, can you explain the rationale of beginning a book that is a work of history with an imaginative, fictive account of someone whose existence we only know from a newspaper advert as
2: What Sadia Hartman and scholars like her have been arguing for the last decade or so is that there are silences in the archive and that the archive reproduces violence. And what she means by that is that the archival record tells us a lot about the people who were enslavers, because these are the people who created the records, and it's about them. On the other hand, it tells us very little about the people they enslaved. And what I'm looking at here is a classic example. In most cases, the only record I have of these people, the only record that still survives that they even existed, are these short newspaper advertisements trying to recapture them when they ran away. So I have maybe 80 words written by someone who claims ownership of them, and who is trying to recapture them. So it's hardly an objective rendering of the person they're describing. How do I recover their lives? And I've done the best I can. But as Hartman and others says, we have to move beyond what is possible in simple historical writing and research. We have to do the research. This has to be based in historical research and what we can find out. But we have to try and imagine the possibilities for these people, because otherwise they're going to exist as ghosts rather than as real people.
3: We'll think a bit more about approaches a little bit later, I think. But let's get into the substance of your book, which is that we tend to think of the institution of racial or racialized slavery as taking shape in the Caribbean and in the American colonies. But your argument is that we have overlooked direct English involvement. I'm quoting you here on English soil in the early development of racial slavery. Can you explain this?
2: Yes, I'm actually arguing against myself as well as other historians. And in my (laughs) last book, I wrote a book about the origins of English plantation slavery, and it was very much about how English law and practices were mixed with West African practices, and in Barbados in particular, which is where it really all starts. The Englishmen there created something new, something that couldn't have existed in England and was different from slavery as it was practiced in West Africa. And it happens at a crucial time. It happens in the middle of the 1600s. As you're in England and the British Isles, all hell is breaking loose. You've got the Civil War, the execution of the king, wars of the three kingdoms. Then you have the Restoration. It's a really crazy time where they're not paying a lot of attention to what's going on in the colonies. They can't. And so the planters in Barbados are able to do things which, in the normal course of events, English governments might have looked on. They may not have done, they may have allowed it, but whatever, they weren't paying attention. So by the time England really cottons on to what's going on in the colonies, slavery is well established and making too much money for them to want to mess with it. So that's the existing argument. But what I found here was that enslaved people are being brought back to England very early and that part of the governance of slavery is how do you stop rebellion? How do you stop these people trying to violently change their situation and be free? So, quickly, people in the colonies like Barbados develop laws and a brutal system of violence to keep slavery in place. The Barbados slave code is crucial here in 1661. Two-thirds of that slave code is about how you punish people who take the most simple, direct form of resistance to slavery. They try to escape it. So, we've looked at that slave code, and it's copied in Jamaica, it's copied in South Carolina. Its main provisions then inform all of the deep south of North America, the Cotton Belt, as it will become eventually. That's where it all comes from. And what I was realizing is that this policing of runaways is being developed in England too, because the most important mechanism for trying to recapture runaways will become the newspaper advertisement. And there are tens of thousands of runaway slave advertisements in the Caribbean and North America, which historians have been using for a long time to try and work out what was going on. But they start in England. They start in 1655. The first surviving runaway newspaper advertisement in any of the English colonies is 1704. So you have 50 years of these advertisements in London. And this institution is being created there because there are enslaved people, there are enslavers, and they're trying to protect the institution. So slavery and control of resistance to slavery is being developed in London as much as it is in the
3: colonies. It's a fascinating discovery, and we're going to look into its detail. But before we get there, perhaps you can give us a sense of London and Londoners in the late 17th century.
2: It's a very large city. The majority of people who live in urban environments in England in 1650 live in London, which is just amazing. And that's partly because it's such a dangerous place to live because of disease and ill health, People are dying at quite a rapid rate, and so it relies on a constant immigration of people looking for work and opportunities. So it's a big city. It's growing fast. It is important that it is open to ocean-going trade, that ships that are going as far as East Asia and the Americas can sail almost all the way to London Bridge. And the goods they have will be unloaded just to the east of London Bridge on the legal keys where all these trade goods have to be unloaded. So it's growing rapidly as a center of trade, as the empire and the colonies begin to develop. And it's also going through a lot of change. The fire of London is important here because of the ability to rebuild the heart of the city of London. It's also, I think, this is something I've come back to because for most of my career, I've been a historian of North America and the Caribbean. So coming back to studying English history for the first time really since high school when I was in England... (laughs) has been very interesting in trying to figure out, well, what is this city all about? I think it was exciting and terrifying. It was loud and noisy. It was full of people. For most of the people who arrive, whether they're arriving from rural Suffolk or the coast of West Africa, it's the largest place they've ever been. But it's also a remarkably diverse place. If you're down on the docks, there are people from all over Europe. There are people from the Turkish Empire. There are people from South Asia. There are people from West Africa. There are people from the Americas. There are some indigenous Americans. They're not the majority by any means.
3: You rely on runaway slave advertisements, as they're called, in newspapers. And you indicate that there are precious few contextual records that might give us more information about people's lives.
4: A little Negro boy of about 13 years of age has been seen much to frequent Fleet Street and the Strand, 1664. A Negro boy, his name Africa, by his growth seeming to be about 12 years old, speaks some English, Dutch, and blacks. 1678. Runaway. A Negro about 16 years of age, pretty tall, he speaks English but slow in speech, he is called by the name of Othello. 1685. An Indian black girl, aged about 15, with a brass collar about her neck, in a drugged gown and a painted calico petticoat, 1690. A black boy, an Indian, about 13 years old, runaway, away, having a collar about his neck with this inscription, Lady Bromfield's Black, 1694. A negro, named Korshi, aged about 16 years, runaway away from Wharf, branded on his left breast with E.A., but not plain, and shaved round his head. 1700.
3: So tell me about using these sources. How have you set about trying to use them?
2: I'd used runaway advertisements before. I've worked on freedom seekers in 18th century Jamaica, and years ago I worked on them in the Philadelphia area for a book on the bodies of the poor and that area. So I was used to using them, but I was used to there being many more of them and there being these other contextual records. When I was writing about Jamaica, it's still hard to recover these people, but there's so much information because there are between 12 and 15 enslaved people for every one white person. So the records are about the enslaved, even though they don't really give us their voices. London was a very different challenge. And so I started collecting these and ended up coming up with about, I think, 212 for this period. But only very rarely would I find this person in any other record, perhaps a parish record or mentioned in correspondence or anything like that, but very rarely. So all I've got is the advertisement, usually between about 60 and 100 words. And it's going to tell me usually the name of the enslaver and or of people who, if you recapture the enslaved person, you can bring them to this person for a reward. Those people have left records. These are merchants. These are wealthy people. These are ship captains. So what I started to do was then follow the trails left by those people. So if an enslaved person runs away from a ship captain who is identified as Captain So-and-so, I try and find that person in other records. And in some cases... The person is a slave ship captain. And because those records have been, many of them have been digitized, the Voyages Transatlantic Slave Trade Database is wonderful for that. So I can see, oh, okay, that person took a ship to West Africa and then on to Barbados and came back to London just a couple of months before this person ran away. So I can surmise that person was almost certainly on that ship. Now, I can't be positive, but the evidence fits. So I can then say, where did these ship captains? by the enslaved in West Africa. And then that will give me a sense of the likely ethnicity of the person. And I can start to think about where in Africa they came from and what the journey across the Atlantic would have been like, why they may have ended up staying on the ship and not being sold in the colonies. So I don't have records about the person, but by looking at the enslaver, I can begin to get a little bit of information.
3: And the other very helpful thing you've done is look at the context of runaway advertisements because, of course, there were servants ran away and I was really struck by the fact that advertisements for runaways that included bodily descriptions had actually started with descriptions of white servants who absconded with their employer's property and how did that shift into white Londoners starting to construct themselves as different from people of colour?
2: That's a really good question and one I'm still working out and other people have worked on this and are thinking about it I was very interested in the uses of descriptions of skin tone and color, and words like swarthy and dark-skinned can just as easily be about a white person who has run away as it can be about an enslaved person. Because there aren't that many enslaved people as yet, especially in London, the descriptions tend to be very simplistic and crude. East India, Guinea Coast, Negro, words like that say, that's enough. This person is from West Africa, that's enough, you'll be able to identify them. Whereas. In a city where servants make up one of the largest occupational groups, these people from about the ages of 12, 13, up into their 20s, there are tens of thousands of them in London, and they're leaving and running away all the time, and some of them are stealing property when they do it. So if you want to get your property back, you have to give a pretty good description because there are thousands of these servants out there. Whereas if a 14-year-old West African boy has run away, There are other 14-year-old West African boys, but not enough that you really have to give a detailed description. And I don't think people yet know how to. As your question implies, they're beginning to learn. And it'll be over time that they'll begin to see differences and begin to talk about the different parts of Africa people are from or the different parts of South Asia and begin to build up a language. So one of the things that interested me here was the word Negro is used only for people from West Africa. But once you get into the 18th century in London advertisements, it'll be used for South Asians as well. There is a racial othering here that Negro is clearly a derogatory term that can be used for people of color from two different continents. Now, that will change, and that wouldn't have been true in the colonies where they're being much more precise. But in Britain, that fluidity was really interesting.
3: What do you know about their status as far as we can tell? They can be free or freed in service or enslaved. One thing I noted in your book which was surprising to me was that the word slave was used surprisingly rarely. So, could it be that many of them are in fact servants? Here's a hypothetical. You talk about one unnamed person described historically as a black servant to Captain Beasley, and you say he's probably the property of Edward Beasley. Now, I had a very interesting conversation some while back. One of my previous guests was Dr. Onyeka Nubia, and he was working on the 16th century, and he said to me, we need to decolonize our minds and not assume an enslaved status. So this had me wondering about whether, on the one hand, there are dangers in eliding the categories of inserviced and enslaved, or on the other hand, whether actually what we're looking at is a continuum.
2: Yes, it's certainly a continuum. And there is more fluidity and status in the British Isles than there would have been in Barbados or Jamaica or Virginia. That's certainly true, where the racial lines and the categories within those races are becoming hardened very quickly. They have to for that slave society to survive in the way its masters wanted to. I think it's quite likely that some of the people I'm looking at were in all kinds of ways servants. But Starting with the use of the terminology, this really interested me. Why isn't the word slave being used? Because it's clearly being used by the people running the slave ships going across the Atlantic, and it's certainly integral to the societies in the colonies. And then I realized... That the word slave is used a lot in 17th century England. It's part of the political and religious rhetoric of this era. That if people talk about the dangers of being enslaved, they're talking about the dangers of popery, Catholicism, and absolutism. They would consider a French person to be more enslaved than they were because they're living under an absolutist Catholic regime. And so that's how, if you Did a search of early English books online for the 17th century in the word slavery. Most of the usage will be for those kinds of things. And there are plenty of examples of that.
3: So it's a kind of philosophical usage, really.
2: Yes, exactly. And it's very much about religious and political liberty as applying to white people. And if you look at the two Bibles that are the most common Bibles at this time, the Geneva Bible and of course the King James Bible, the word slave hardly ever appears. They use the word servant or bondsman sometimes. But if they're talking even about the Israelites escaping from Egypt, they describe them as servants. So the word servant could be used to apply to enslaved people. So just because someone's labeled a servant doesn't necessarily mean they're not enslaved. That said, I think some of these people either had been freed or would eventually be freed. And that, as you say, they're on this continuum. That's almost certainly true. But what's also, and I did find examples of this, these are people who have endured, they were enslaved in South Asia or in West Africa, in the Caribbean, and brought to Britain, they knew how bad it could be to live in a state of true racial slavery. And whatever their status in London, there is always the fear and the danger they could be returned to that. And many were. And I have found the examples of that happening. So even if you're living in London in a state of where it's not like slavery in the Caribbean. Of course it's not. And it would have looked relatively benign to many people in England. To the person who's endured the Middle Passage as a 12 or 13-year-old boy and seen dozens of people die, seen the slave sales as they arrived in the Caribbean, and then being brought to London, knowing that they could be sent back to that. Can you ever be free? Can you ever really be out of a state of slavery? Yes, there's a continuum, but I think the mental world of these people meant that very few of them ever got to the stage where they felt themselves truly safe and free.
3: Yes, I was really struck by that very real threat of being sold into colonial slavery. The story of Samuel Pepys and the startling fate of his enslaved servant, Sambo, is a case in point, isn't
2: it? It is. And this is a typical example. There was some people have described it as a fashion for having enslaved young boys who were very good-looking, and you would dress them in beautiful uniforms, liveries, and they were a reflection of your wealth and power. Pepys was a fairly successful naval official, lived a fairly high standard of living, and this young boy who served him was a symbol of his wealth. The young boys grow up, and they see some free people of color in London, they see the potential to be free, they become resentful and angry about their position, And it became very clear, and in his correspondence, Pepys makes this clear, it's after the period when he kept a diary, that it was no longer safe to have Sambo in the house. He and his wife were frightened of him. And so he arranges for Sambo to be taken by some sailors to a naval ship that's going to the Caribbean and to be sold then, and the money returned to Pepys. So Sambo goes back to almost certainly die as a Caribbean slave on a sugar plantation. Hi everyone, I'm Jimmy Doherty, TV presenter, farmer and conservationist. I've got a brand new podcast where we discuss all things green, from nature to recycling to foraging to potty-training cows. Yep, I'm not joking. Apparently, it helps with pollution. Each week, you'll be hearing from some recognisable faces off the telly and eco-experts who tell us how they try and sometimes fail to live a greener life. People like the founder of the Eden Project, Sir Tim Smith ecopreneur Ashita Cabra-Davis on why renting our clothes might be the future and my old pal Jamie Oliver on how to eat in season tune into On Jimmy's Farm from History Hit follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom like Evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads
4: generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me
0: get your personalized plan today at noom.com real noom user compensated to provide their story in four weeks the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week individual results may vary when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring
3: So let's talk a bit more about the advertisements. What can they tell us and what can they not tell us?
2: Well, as I've mentioned, we're looking at the words of someone who's trying to recapture a runaway, a freedom seeker. So they tell us first and foremost what that person thinks about the enslaved. You very rarely get any sense of the personality of the enslaved person or some of the Caribbean advertisements and the North American advertisements are much more detailed about that. And they'll talk about the personality of the person and why they were liable to, they may even give reasons why they escaped and things like that. We very rarely see that. So they don't tell us much about the people. They sometimes describe clothing quite well, especially if these people are wearing liveries and uniforms, because those are expensive and they're valuable. Clothing could be exchanged or sold, but it's a way to mark the person too. If they're wearing a tailor-made green suit, or something, that's going to be easy to identify. They can tell us where the person escaped, they can tell us where the person could be returned to, which may be the house or home or business of the place they escaped from, but it is quite likely somewhere else. And what that begins to tell us about is how is a system developing in London to recover escaped people, and who is part of that? Both good questions. And the proportion of female runaways is certainly lower than it was in the Caribbean and North America. It's never a majority. Most runaways are young male, and there are good reasons for that. As women become old enough to run away, they're more likely to have children. And of course, that makes escape much more
3: difficult. In your book, you look at a range of different advertisements to explore some of the themes that can be traced across them. And one is, of course, about gender. Why were there fewer girls and women than boys and men in the black community, as far as we can tell? and even fewer represented in the advertisements?
2: I think there are a couple of reasons why there are so many males. Many of those being brought to London are boys, they're young. They are being sent from West Africa or South Asia. Some are being sent, quite frankly, as gifts to officials, to aristocrats, to people who've invested in the East India Company, the Royal African Company. It's become fashionable to have enslaved servants and they are being sent, but also ship captains are bringing them back. And ship captains may keep them in London, or they may sell them on to someone else. That's because the captains of slave ships are entitled to one, or perhaps two, or even three members of the cargo as their own personal property. Usually they would sell those people on arrival and pocket the money they made on arrival in the Caribbean. But sometimes they don't, and they become attached to these people or they decide to keep them, have them as a cabin boy serving them on the way back, have them as a servant in London or sell them on. Most of the people who are sending or bringing enslaved people back to London are male. And they tend to bring males with them because men in 17th century England had male personal attendants, valets, we would probably call them, things like that, or cabin boys. There are far fewer women. I think that's the main reason.
3: Yes, it's very sobering to read about the prevalence of children, especially those young boys. Let's hear an advert about a young boy called Jack.
4: A guinea negro boy about eight years old named Jack, straight limb, no mark in his face, in a black cloth suit and a black serge frock over them, and on his head a black cloth permission cap. He strayed away from Mr. Peter Pageans in Cross Lane on St. Mary Hill near Billingsgate. On the third instant, about six in the afternoon, whoever shall bring this said Negro boy to the above said Mister Pageans, or discover where he is, so that he may be had again, shall have twenty shillings reward. The London Gazette, ninth of June, sixteen ninety. What
3: sort of jobs did these boys do?
2: The advertisement for Jack, the first interesting thing is that he's described as a Guinea Negro boy, which tells us he's from the Guinea coast of West Africa. So he is clearly born West African. This is the youngest of all the freedom seekers i found so far, because the next thing it tells us is he's eight years old, which is astonishing. It's unlikely he was above seven when he left West Africa. So he would have been on a slave ship from probably the Gold Coast, from West Africa. One of the younger people on that ship... He would have been less desirable to buy on arrival in the Caribbean because you can't put an eight-year-old out to work in a sugar field. There is work children can do, and they were made to do work, but he's not valuable yet. In fact, he's more likely to be a cost to a planter. And those are the terms they think in. In some ways, it's not surprising he ends up he has a value that he didn't have in the Caribbean. He has a black cloth suit, a black serge frock, and a black cloth permission cap, which I believe is a cap that you don't have to remove in places where a male would normally have to remove their hat, like in church. So he's well-dressed. This is an enslaved boy who is going to reflect the power and the wealth of the master who he attends. And quite often these enslavers would use these boys, take them, if they're going to the royal exchange, if they're going to a coffee house, if they're going to business meetings, this person will go with them. They'd run errands, they'd be available to go and get coffee, to do whatever it was that the master wanted. So he would be seen out and about with his master. And that's why they're dressed well, because you don't want this person looking shabby in the way that plantation workers in the Caribbean. Their clothing was terrible. But here, this is a reflection on the master. He's run away from Cross Lane, which is this short little lane not far from the Tower of London, between the Tower of London and London Bridge. And he's run away from a very wealthy merchant, Peter Pagans. It's a Huguenot merchant family. And the reward is 20 shillings. So it's a one pound reward, which is a lot of money for a working person in London.
3: Some of the other advertisements you've worked with give descriptions of physical marks and interestingly of scarification. And this could signify, on the one hand, I suppose, violence enacted upon them, but also might testify to a West African heritage. What have you made of these?
2: Yes, I think most of it is a West African heritage that these, what would become known as country marks, and these were ritual scarification, usually of the cheeks, the brow, the upper arms, and sometimes the torso, done usually as children start to become adults or approaching adulthood. It's common in parts of West Africa. It's also common in parts of Madagascar. And some of these enslaved people are coming from Madagascar. So it's certainly common enough that it's mentioned in advertisements. And there's even one advertisement which says the runaway didn't have these marks. So it was clearly common enough that it was worth noting that this person didn't have them. So that would have been another way in which they would have been viewed as very alien and other. Because, of course, there's nothing quite like that in England at this time. The other marks which are clearly imposed by white people are brand marks. Some of the advertisements do talk about brand marks on occasion. They are the initials of the master who is trying to capture the person.
3: And the other thing that was imposed often, you've mentioned finding in quite a few of these, are collars. Now, these aren't iron shackles, but they are silver or brass or steel for the onlookers, and one thinks very much not so for the wearers. Were they a way of making enslavement more palatable?
2: It's really interesting, because I'd seen so many freedom seekers in the colonies who had collars and chains, and they're always iron. They are rough cast, cheaply made, oxidized, ugly, and abrasive. These things hurt. They're purely functional. Hundreds of tons of them are being produced in London and Birmingham at this point for the slave trade ships. And then when the slave trade ships get to the colonies, they are unloaded with the people, and then they're to be used in the colonies. So A lot of these coarse iron restraints are being made, but they're not using them in London. Very rarely. There are a couple of occasions, but they're using silver, brass, and steel. And freshly forged steel is very attractive. It's shiny. It looks good. The surviving ones still look good. So yes, why are they using them? I think, again, it is a reflection of wealth and power. And my sense is it comes from the tradition of having expensive collars made for dogs. And the elite did this. And there are plenty of portraits. There were even some portraits from the early 17th century, mid-17th century, which have an enslaved attendant and a dog, both wearing collars. And these collars would be quite ornate. If people are interested, there's a museum of dog collars in Leeds Castle in Kent. And when you look at them, they look just like these slave collars, and they're older. So I think that's where the practice may have come from. And then later in the 18th century, there are people who advertise, if you want collars made for your dogs or your slaves... I will make them.
3: What you've just said about the connection to dog collars also gives us a very clear sense of how enslaved peoples are starting to be conceptualised in London at this time.
2: Yes, it's sobering. It's hard to read and deal with. The collars never name the person wearing them because they often have engraved inscriptions on them. They almost always name the master and quite often an address. So again, it's like a dog collar. that says, if found, return to. The person wearing them couldn't see that. They probably couldn't read English anyway. They could just feel the lettering. You just try and imagine, what did it look like if a young boy is attending a merchant walking through the streets of London and he has a nice uniform on and a silver collar? To a poor laborer, he would have looked privileged. And yet, what did it feel like to him who'd seen what he'd seen on a slave ship and in the Caribbean to wear a collar? doesn't matter that it was silver. It's a collar.
3: Now, of course, the people writing these advertisements are hoping they're going to have their property in Adverticomas returned to them. And you mentioned the value of the reward for Jack. Is that a standard sort of value, twenty shillings, or does it vary greatly?
2: Yes. It doesn't vary a great deal. It's quite often in terms of guineas, it's quite often one guinea, occasionally two or as many as five guineas. But the great irony of using the guinea, which is named for the gold coins being used, created by the mint out of gold from West Africa in this trade is enormous, that West African gold could be used as a reward for the recapture of this person. So that 20, 21 shillings, because the value of a guinea we think of as 21 shillings, it wasn't quite as precise then, but it was around that. That's fairly common.
3: And Although London is big and these advertisements and indeed the parish records situate people of colour all over London, there seems to be in your work this connection to the coffee houses. At least that's one of the locations that you could return a captured runaway. And this area around the Royal Exchange and the coffee houses and the print shops seems to be important. What does this place of return for recaptured freedom seekers tell us?
2: I think it tells us two things. The first is you need somewhere there will be a person there able to take custody of this recaptured runaway. So for many members of the elite and wealthy merchants, they quite often don't have what we will consider an office. They have a home, of course, but a lot of the time they'll be out and about. And when you look at someone like Samuel Pepys, he works in the admiralty offices, but when you read his diary, he doesn't spend a lot of time there. He's having meetings here, there. He's going to Westminster. He's going to meet ship captains, he's going to shipyards. His work takes him everywhere. So if he was trying to have a runaway return to him, where could the person be taken to? So you need a place where there's going to be someone there. The coffee houses are places where many of these people do business. They or their colleagues are there regularly. And of course, there is a proprietor and staff there. And it's somewhere where you're going to be regularly. So you pick the coffee house that you patronize the most. One of the most common is law, one of the earliest coffee houses, but it's very popular with slave ship captains and the merchants who are involved with that trade. And it will become very important in that trade because of the insurance, the industry that grows out of it. So that's one of the practical reasons for using the coffee houses. Then I think it's also that they're concentrated in the heart of the City of London, the financial district, and that the people who are involved in enslaving others, that's where they congregate. This is a sympathetic network for the enslavers.
3: Now, there are people whose names are very familiar to us. We've mentioned Samuel Pepys already. But also the royal family, entrenched, in fact, in profit from the transatlantic slave trade, and equally in the holding of enslaved people in London. What do we know?
2: Yes. It's very clear that, say, for example, the Duke of York future James II, is one of the leaders of the Royal African Company and the slave trading companies that will eventually monopolize the West African slave trade and win the right to sell enslaved people throughout the Americas, including to the Spanish colonies, that the Stuart family heavily invested in that company and making a great deal of money from it. A good number of enslaved people branded in West Africa D Y that's for Duke of York. So they are heavily engaged in this. They're almost certainly enslaved people owned by members of the royal family. And we're learning more about that all the time.
3: Now, you've done such important work. And I want to urge those listening to pick up a copy of your book, Freedom Seekers, because I think this will be one of my books of the year. I know we're early in the year, but I think this is a really important work. And I can't call it an enjoyable read, but it is very well written and it is very thought provoking. And the sources that you use are fascinating themselves, because on the one hand, they're testifying to the fact that enslavers are trying to control and objectify those who are enslaved as a commodity. On the other hand, they show us agency and insurgency and efforts to find their own path by those who are enslaved. But the question that pressed down on me as I was reading it is that this is difficult and disturbing, even sickening material to work with. How... As a researcher, did you manage?
2: It's a good question, and thank you for your kind words. There were a couple of things that drove me forward in doing this. My family all came from the East End of London, and I visited grandparents in the East End growing up. I grew up in Suffolk. And when I went to school, I never learned any of this history. I didn't know much about the history of slavery at all at that point. And what I did know was that Britain had a leading role in abolishing the slave trade and then eventually slavery itself. And it's a very celebration of story and account. And as I realized how important this was in the history of London, England, and the British Isles, I wanted this story to be there and for more people to know about it. And I thought, too, that it's really important for people to realize that there were enslaved people, but more than that, that there were people of color present in London and England at this time, and that they are part of the story and the fabric of that city. And part of what's come out of this project is working with young black poets and artists on a related project who've looked at some of my research and then have created their own poetry and artwork about this history and seeing them take ownership of we have a history in this city and these people deserve to be remembered and celebrated and commemorated. And that's very
4: rewarding.
3: Well, you've certainly done that. Your book Speaks to individual stories and commemorates and acknowledges the lives of these people. And I think it is paradigm shifting and it makes us think again about the history of England and of Britain more generally that racial slavery was something that was happening here. It's not just over there, far away, it is here. And so I want to say thank you very much for your work in writing it and thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. To talk about it.
2: Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you.
3: Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. History is full of extraordinary people